Okay. Isaiah 6. We'll be back in this if, if you're not quite there yet. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. We'll stop there. Before we move on, let me just pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, just um, thank you for your son, Jesus, truly, and everything that you have done for us, the length that you've gone to just show your love to us. But I pray now especially that we would understand your character better, Father, of just this attribute of your holiness, God. Um, what that means for you to be that, what it means for us to be holy, Lord, and your calling to us to be holy in our daily lives, God. God, uh, you are great. You are awesome. You are good. You are merciful. You are just. You are love. You are so many things, Lord. I just thank you so much for being with us, for loving us. And again, I pray you'd open our ears, open our hearts to uh, what we are going to learn tonight about your holiness. In your name, amen. Okay. What is this? Oh a, thank you, sister. That's a very damn response. Uh, this is a volleyball. So uh, if you guys could just shout out three adjectives and three verbs about a volleyball. We're describing a volleyball here. Forgive me if you can't see what I'm writing, but... And this is, yeah, well, it's volleyball. So, so if you could give me... Three adjectives, three verbs about volleyball, blue. just to describe it. Okay, Round. this one here is blue. What was that? Round. Round. Bouncy. Bouncy is a verb. That's fine. That's, a, that's fine. Yeah. Two more, two more adjectives. Two, uh, one more adjective, two more verbs. Is this hard? Oh, sorry. Bouncy sure is an adjective. Bounce. Sorry, we'll count it. It's hard for me. Are verbs that you can use to describe Yeah, bounces. Role. Maybe what is <laughs> what function? What function does a volleyball serve? Spike. Spike. Okay. <laughs> we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. You bump it. You spike it. We'll leave it there. Thank you guys. Round of applause for the crowd. Round of applause. For the crowd. Okay. So if I cover up the word volleyball and you start to read this, you see blue. You're like, ah, I don't really know exactly. It's bouncy. Maybe round. Okay, it's like a ball. Rolls, yeah, it's still a ball. Spike, oh, okay, that's probably a volleyball. Like, you have a pretty good idea of what a volleyball is now. Okay, so now I want to try this exercise with the word of the evening, holy. I'm not looking for necessarily three adjectives or three verbs, but just like what are, what are some words that come to mind when you hear the word holy? Set apart, separate. Okay. Set apart, separate. What else? Clean. 
Clean. <laughs> it's markers dying. You probably can't read my handwriting anyway. Other other adjectives, other things that describe holy. Sacred. Sacred. What was that? Anointed. Anointed. Okay. So we have an idea here. But honestly, if I cover the, this word up, the holy up, um, you would probably see this and you'd be like, that's what holiness is. But these are kind of almost just synonyms for holy. And in this sense, we see words that describe volleyball. And it's easy because it's a physical object. We can see it. We know what it is. We know what it does. But holiness and the adjective of holy is something that's a little bit harder to understand. So the endeavor for tonight is hopefully a better understanding of what holiness is, that we could grasp it, we could understand God's holiness and our holiness. Yeah, I'm going to turn this around. It's not necessary. I'm ashamed of my Henry. <laughs> So, what is holiness? Let's just get into it. That first, first two words that people said, set apart or separate, that is, in Hebrew, ultimately what the word means uh, when you get down to it. There's other words that come to mind, such as like perfect, morally right, um, you know, right and wrong. Those things come to mind. But in the Hebrew, it's just separate, set apart. Okay, now let me find actually follow my notes here. So let's jump into, and let's not jump into Isaiah 3. Let's define holiness. So again, it's separate. It's set apart. I'm going to be using that word separate to, to define it, but it's a little bit more than just separate. And at least God's holiness is more than just separate. It's more than set apart. God's holiness is as the author R.C. Sproul would define in his book, The Holiness of God. It is transcendentally separate. That's a big word, transcendental. But what it means is, as we said, separate, being apart, but also transcendental. Transcendental is this word is like far beyond. It's different. It's leagues above. It's something different. It's not quite like me saying I'm an average runner and God is an Olympic level athlete Like, because it's still comparable. You can still say that. It's more like... Me saying, how big is infinity? Well, I could say, like, how big is 99? It's one less than 100. But how big is infinity? You can't actually say how big it is because it's just, you can't measure it. In a similar way, that's what God's holiness is. It's separate, but it's also transcendent. It's leagues beyond anything else. And so God is different from us. He's separate. He's apart from us. And he's very, the way that he is apart from us is different. Okay. Now, like I said, there's like other ideas that come to mind about holiness. There's the idea of perfection, but let's work with this idea that the main definition of holiness is separate first because holy, you, you, you know, when you say holy, this is holy, you do think like a holy life is a perfect life, but let's work with holy is separate first, but moving into that, that holiness is also perfection, we also see God's other characteristics flow out of that, such as his goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his righteousness. But he's not just goodness. He's not just love. He's not just the mercy, grace, and justice. He's all these things together. But each of these things themselves are holy. You can put that adjective on there. 
he's not just love. His, his love is not just regular love. But you add that modifier holy, and it's the best love. It's the highest love that there possibly is. And the same thing goes for all the other attributes. His goodness is holy, and he's not just good. He's also truth, but his truth is also holy. It's separate. It's different from the world. It's different than what we might expect. His um, mercy, his grace is holy. It's separate from what the world would say, from any standard that the world would even set. So with this, I just want to say that understanding God's character can be a little difficult at some time, and we will never fully understand him in this life, but it is good to make a, an attempt at that. The um, author of The Knowledge of Holy, Pastor A.W. Tozer, has said, what comes to mind, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now... I'm not necessarily going to agree with like that that is the most important thing about us, but just I like that statement in the sense that when we think about God, that is really important. Uh, so when you think about God, what is that image that comes to mind? JJ sort of talked about this on the retreat in the summer if you were there. Um, if you see God as an old man in the sky who's just like kind of apart from you, then that's like how you're going to live your life. You're going to live your life to, and do other things uh, and just do things that you want to do. Um, if you see God as you know, vengeful and not giving you what you want, then you're going to have a perspective on the world in which you just don't get what you want, and you're just going to be in fear and disappointment. So having that right understanding of God and his character is important, and I'd like to say that seeing his holiness is very important, uh, it, just because I think we often can forget that, and we look at God is love, God is good, God is merciful. We have to remember also on top of that he is holy. All of those things themselves are separate and above any other attribute that he has. That didn't make sense. His whole, we modify it so his love is different than like the love of the world, for example. It's holy. All right. So with that, we have this sort of working definition of holiness. Holiness is separate. And God's holiness is this transcendental separateness or this separateness that is, is further than anything else. And it's different. Let's go back into Isaiah 6 now. And right in the beginning, we can see an example of God's holiness. Um, we see, well, let's just read it through one more time, and then we'll jump in verse by verse here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated and on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So, right there in verse 1, we see an example of God's holiness. Even before we see this, these adjectives, he's high and exalted. Right there, in the year that King Uzziah died, you can read the story on your own, in, in your own time, in First Chronicles... Uh, 22, uh, and, sorry, Second Chronicles chapter 22. Um, 
King Uzziah was this bad king. He basically went into the temple and he did something he wasn't supposed to. He didn't immediately die on the spot, but he uh, leprosy formed on him. I think it says on his forehead immediately. And then he lived out the rest of his days. So he does something holy, unholy. He desecrates this holy area that God has set apart his sanctuary. And he dies as a result of that. And so that's like very important just to see that right there in verse one. But now let's move on. He's high and exalted. And I think that these two adjectives here correspond to what Sproul talks about is that transcendent separateness. He's high, he's separate, he's apart, but he's also exalted. He's far beyond anything else there. So we keep going. Verse three. This holy, 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 it's repeated three times. This is probably the only characteristic of God that is repeated three times consecutively. We, we see all throughout the Bible talks that people talking about God's compassionate and gracious and he's also just and he's wrathful and it's repeated many times but not consecutively like this the fact that these angels are saying this over and over again is just showing how important his holiness is and then we also see his glory and that points back into verse one we see his holiness he's high and exalted and also his glory that is his the train of his robe is filling the temple it's flowing out all over the place so it's important to uh, look at other parts of the Bible and just see other examples of God's holiness. So you guys don't have to turn here, but we'll just go to First uh, Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 96, 9. Thank you. Uh, there is no... Uh, worship the Lord in splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Can you go to the next one, please? Isaiah 57, 17. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So there's some other examples of God's holiness throughout the Bible. You could find it all over the place if you look for it. Uh, and then again, in verse three, we also see that mention of his glory. So that his holiness and his glory are tied together. And this tonight is about holiness. It's not about glory, but I do want to stop because, and, and look at glory just for a second because it's important to, to address that. John Piper describes glory as the manifestation of God's holiness. And this is why I want to stop here and just be like, okay, we should look at this. So it's kind of like how beauty is reflective of a person's character, but it's not entirely who that person is. In the same way, God's glory is reflective of his character. It's a, maybe a physical or a other manifestation of his holiness. It's an experience of that. And, and we see that in verse one with the robe filling the temple that displays God's glory in a sense. Um, the Hebrew word for that, uh, for glory is, is weightiness. It's just, it's heavy. It's what gives something its value. It's what gives something its worth. And so God being glorious shows he, he is worthy and that points back to his holiness, him being separate and apart because of his character, because of who he is. Um, and then just another example of God's glory, Exodus 34, if you could go there. I'm not going to read this, but and maybe you can see it, maybe you can't. Uh, but basically this is when uh, Moses is getting the Ten Commandments from God. He's, he's received them, he's written them down, and he's coming down from Mount Sinai. And if you read this, you'll see that uh, actually his face is glowing because he has experienced the glory of God. He has experienced God's presence, not fully, 
but in a bit. And so that's it. Like, it's actually very interesting. He hasn't even fully experienced God's presence, but he comes down and his face is radiant. It's not just glowing, but it's radiating. It's going outward to the point where people are afraid to come near him and they tell him to cover his face up. Like, like just, you can't do that. And at some point, it actually ends up fading away. But because of this experience with God and his holiness, his glory and his presence, there's a reflection on Moses in that. So verse three, we see his glory points back to his holiness. Verse four is just showing how mighty God is, that how mighty his angels are, that they say these things. And, and it's basically an earthquake, sort of a call back to Exodus 19 when Moses, uh, when God descends on, on Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up for the first time and there's smoke surrounding the temple, uh, surrounding the, the mountain there. Verse five, let's move on to that. Now, this is important. This is Isaiah's response to God, but this also reflects our response to God. And so we see here, he's like, woe is me. It's kind of an antiquated thing. You know, I'm woe. What does that mean? I don't really know, but it it sounds pretty heavy. Uh, But moving into I am ruined, we can see a little bit more understanding Oh, I'm ruined. I'm destroyed. He's saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. So he could have said something else instead of saying that he's ruined. He could have been like, as these angels are saying, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty, his glory goes to the ends of the earth. He could have been like, yeah, I agree with that. He could have responded in the same way. He could have said, holy, holy, holy. He could have said, hey, I mean, I'm pretty holy compared to the rest of these people around me. But he doesn't say that. He, he says, I'm ruined. I'm destroyed because... Similarly, into Ex- as Exodus uh, chapter 33, right before this, God says, no one can see my face and live. And now Isaiah is saying, basically, I'm, I've seen God. I'm ruined because I don't deserve to see him. He says, anyone who sees my face will die. And not only is he saying that he's ruined because of that, but he's also ruined because of this attribute of God's holiness. And he sees the juxtaposition of his unholiness against God's holiness here. He has this response and just, you see it here. He's saying, I'm unclean. My people are unclean. He doesn't uh, just, it just, un- it unwinds him. Okay. So now let's move into our response to God's holiness, which again, should be similar to, to Isaiah's response. I don't know how often you dwell on this, but um, it is something we should think about is, is how truly we have offended God in our sin. If you haven't realized that you have, um, God is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. In even the most perfect actions in our lives, the most perfect pure motives, we are sinners. No one is perfect. Um, But we have offended God. That's what I want to say. And offending God, it might be hard to understand because if I like, if I hurt Winston, for example, sorry, Winston, um, it's a little bit easier for me to seek forgiveness and reconciliation for him if I desire that, maybe if I don't, then I'm not going to do it. But if I do, it's, it's, easier, to, it's easier for me to follow, follow through with that because uh, he's there. He's a physical person. He's somebody who, like, 
I have an ongoing relationship that I see in person and like has like in interaction with me. And so it's easy for me to understand that I've offended him and also trying to reconcile that with God. At least for me, it's a little bit different sometimes, like because he is so far, he is holy and separate, as we said. But even just the way I experience God is different than the way I have a friendship with Winston. It can be harder for me to desire that reconciliation and to also see truly ultimately that I've offended God. Even if I offend Winston, it comes down to offending God as well. Um, So Isaiah here, he has that response. He's seeing how he has offended God again. He probably is one of the holiest people among um, among his people, but he is nothing compared to God. So now let's move on to verse six. We see the seraph come down, take this coal and put it on his lips. And this place where he just said, my lips are unclean. The seraph puts it right there on that place where he said, my lips are unclean and cleanses him. It says, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And so now Isaiah has this grace from God. He has forgiveness and it hasn't even done anything to receive it. We don't see anything in between verse five and verse six that says because of uh, Isaiah did this, because he had faith in God, because he said this about God, the seraph did this. No, God saw Isaiah's need for redemption. He saw Isaiah's need for forgiveness and he made the provision for that to happen. He sent a seraph to go down and cleanse his lips, this place that has offended God. And then it's taken away and it's atoned for. And a similar thing is, as I was just talking about, as we have this godly offense and we can sort of lose sight of how deeply we have offended God, we also sometimes can lose sight of how much hope we have in God and how much grace we have from God. We can have grace from other people in relationships. You know, Winston can um, help me out here and there. And I can be like, man, I love Winston because he does these things and, and just think about that. But then not dwelling on truly like God has done what for me? What has he done? We'll get into that if you don't know. Uh, <laughs> but dwelling on that hope that we have. So seeing this weight in verse five of this offense, ultimately against our holy creator, and then also filling in his, with his, the grace that he has given us that should produce so much ultimate hope in us. We have this ultimate offense against God, but there's also this ultimate hope that we have in him. And so what is that hope? You could turn with me to Philippians chapter two, or it'll be on the screen, I think, as well. Now, this will be in verse seven. This is describing what Jesus has done, who Jesus is in a sense. And so Jesus, being in very nature... God did not consider equality with God to be something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. to the glory of God, his father. And so that is what God has done. And we see here in Isaiah six, that um, there's an 
one instance of God's grace to Isaiah, his, his atonement. And even in the Old Testament, the people had a way of seeking atonement. Every year they would make this, ulti- this big sacrifice. And, but it, for them, it was kind of actually just pushing back this atonement that God would give ultimately in Jesus. And we as modern day followers of God, also just as modern day people, have atonement ultimately in Jesus. And this is, we see here, comparing this with holiness, Jesus is just as holy as his Father. Jesus is one with the Father and with the Spirit. He has that same transcendent separateness. He is different from us, but he's also leagues beyond us in the way that he is different from us. And he puts that aside. We see that in verse uh, 6. I realized I started in verse 6, but said verse 7. That's all right. Um, in verse 6, he is in very nature God, but he humbled himself. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. He put that to the side so that he could die on a cross for us and taking the wrath of God. Verse um, 5 of Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is responding in this way in fear and trembling because he knows the wrath that he deserves from God. He knows the punishment that he deserves. But we do not have to take that because of what Christ has done. And so in a similar way, we should have this response of like, I am ruined. I am awful. I am just this horrible human being. I don't deserve anything. But Jesus has come and he has covered this. He has taken and borne the wrath of God, the punishment I deserve. And also he has risen. He has raised to life. And when we put our hope in him, our ultimate hope in him, we can live with God for eternity and being made perfect and being made holy. And so with that, let's move into our holiness because not only is God holy, but he calls us to be holy ourselves. So just again to recap that God's holiness is this transcendent separateness from us. He's separate from the world, from the standards of the world. And out of that flow these other characteristics of who God is. But we also have to understand that God calls us to be holy in our lives. Hey, guys. Um, So holiness for us is this sanctification. You may have heard that term before. And sanctification is similar to holy already. Sanctify means to be set apart, to be separate. So God is doing this process in us, and he has actually already done it. And there's two ways of looking at this holiness that we have. It's a holiness in standing in that right when you put your faith in God, God sees you as holy. But also there's a daily process and there's a calling to be holy in our daily lives. So the holiness of God and the holiness of us is pretty much the same. It's calling us to be separate. We are to be separate from the world. We're supposed to act differently than the world does. We're supposed to also ultimately act differently from ourselves the, the old self, from the sinful self, from the flesh. Even if you've been a believer since as long as you can remember and you think, oh, I haven't had it that bad or I haven't, you know, created too many habitual sins, the Bible says that we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and um, that we, we uh, lost my train of thought, sorry. Um, we have all fallen short of his glory Sorry, guys. But we're not like him. And uh, that's, that's the point there. 
our holiness is not quite like God's holiness because the object of God's holiness, as I mentioned glory earlier, is the manifestation of God's holiness. The object of God's holiness is himself, of his, of his glory. So we see God's glory, it points back to himself. We are called to be holy and we are being made holy. But the glory that we see from our holiness is not pointed to ourselves, but again, pointed back to God. And when we try to do that, when we try to point it back to ourselves, that's when we get it wrong. When we try to get glory for ourselves and we're being like set, separate and set apart, that starts to become a cultural holiness. It starts to become, I'm doing these things and, and just these are right and wrong and things become black and white and you just start to create a culture that is separate from living a life that is holy for God. And again, even as Christians, um, we're not called to be like, those around us. We're not called to be like those around us in the world. We're also not called to be like each other as Christians. We're called to admire the things we see in each other and the behaviors we see in each other that are godly, but ultimately those are things that God has put in us. And so we are called to conform to Christ's image, to his character. And that is the holiness that God calls us to. Okay, so back to verse five of Isaiah. He says, I'm ruined. He is destroyed. He deserves to die. And in a similar sense, we should say that we are ruined. And what is the we that is ruined? It is not our whole being, but it is our old self. It is the flesh. So in the process of God's holiness, we seek to destroy that, the old self. We seek to put that down and to live a life that is pleasing to him. And so now there's this question of how are we to be holy? So we know we have a calling to be holy. God says that to be holy for he is holy. But there's still that question of, of being holy. Uh, you may have struggled. You probably have struggled with understanding what am I doing with my life? Not only that, like what am I doing with sin? Like it's just held on to me. It's gripped me. I can't do anything. There's no point. I can't be holy. I can't be perfect. So if I can't be perfect, and I can't be different from my old self, I can't be different from the world, then I should just give up. Or not just give up, but trust God. And that's great, trust God to do the work. But he provides, he provides his uh, opportunity to be holy through his Holy Spirit, but we have a responsibility to take action. A way to help you understand this is to think of a farmer. If a farmer wants to grow a crop of corn, he has to do some work to do that. He plants the corn. In order to do that, he goes out into the field, he plows it, he fertilizes the soil, he puts the seed in the soil, he maintains the land, he keeps it going. And then the rain comes down and it keeps nourishing that plant. And then after a while, as the rain continues to come, that plant grows. But he's completely dependent on nature. He's completely dependent on that rain to come. Without it, he's not going to see any harvest of that corn. But if he says, well, the rain's going to come, and he's just not doing any work. He doesn't go out. He doesn't plow the field. He doesn't fertilize the soil. He doesn't plant the seed. And all that rain comes down. No matter how much rain comes down, he's not going to see corn. It's just not going to happen because he hasn't planted it. He hasn't done the work. And so in a similar way, our responsibility to be holy is um, to take hold of that, to do the work, but also expect God to work. So no matter how much rain comes down, if we are not doing the work, then we're not going to see the fruit. Now, I don't want to say, like, this can be a little bit too absolute to the point of, like, 
it's, it's not about earning your salvation. It's not about earning uh, righteousness with God. Jesus has done that. But we um, are responsible to do work. And there, maybe there's something in your life that you just don't know what it is and God will deliver you from that and you just you don't actually have to work that much. Praise God. But there is there are things in our life like putting to death our old self, ruining the old self that we have a responsibility to and we need to do work in that. So that's our distinction there. We have God provides opportunity for us to be holy through his Holy Spirit, through his word, but we have to be responsible and take action with that as well. I wish I could say, you know, here's three easy steps to holiness, um, but it doesn't work like that. And each of our journeys are different. God provides for each of us, but it's, it's different. But I'm going to try to give a little bit of, not, maybe not so much practical advice, but some, some things to work with here. Of course, that reminder that you have to start with the Holy Spirit. You can't be holy on your own. You must trust God. You have to believe that his spirit is going to work in you, that God is providing for you. We often forget um, in that name of the Holy Spirit, there's that word there, holy. That God's spirit who has come to us to be with us, the way we can relate to him, just like we can relate to a friend who is close to us, is not just the spirit, but it's his Holy Spirit. It's this thing that is perfect, separate, leagues beyond ourselves. And it comes in us and it starts to continue that process of setting us apart for God. We see that in Romans chapter 8. Um, is that the next? Oh, you're not. You're the other Rachel. That's not that. Okay. Um, I'm not going to use it. You can go back to this, please. That's right. Thank you. Um, All right, well, let's just move on. Um, I, I think I was supposed to include those verses in somewhere else, but kind of lost it, but that's right. Uh, sorry. Back to that question of how am I to be holy? That's something that I think each of us are supposed to figure out for ourselves. That's that responsibility. God is providing, but we're also responsible. How am I to be holy? Again, I don't have a lot of practical advice for you, at least not in this uh, session, but... Let's go to First Peter, um, and we can all turn there together to see a little bit. And I don't think I have. This is just something you'll have to turn to. This is not on the screen. So this is where we see God's calling for us to be holy as he is holy, which comes from the Old Testament. But then also here we see a reflection of kind of of that passage from Isaiah chapter 6. So this is... 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace given you when Christ Jesus is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from you by your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So we'll stop there. Uh, there's a lot of parallels here to what we unpacked there in Isaiah chapter 6. We see that uh, right there in verse 19, that there is this empty way of living 
handed to you by your forefathers. Isaiah talks about his himself being unclean, but also the people around him being unclean, being handed down sort of these traditions, these practices of sinning, these ways of sinning. And, and here Peter is saying that's not how we should live and that's not how we were saved. It was through Christ. It was through Jesus who was holy without any blemish, without any defect. Verse 17, we live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Going back to verse 5 in, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this experience with God that, that shakes him. It, it makes him realize his sinfulness. It makes him tremble, but it also shapes him. It changes him and it grows him. And so we should live lives walking in reverence, not just completely, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm destroyed. But God is good. He has given me grace through Jesus Christ. He has redeemed me. And so now we walk in a way of reverent fear. So we, we have this view of God that we should be in, in fear of him, in awe of him, in his holiness, but walking forward and not just completely paralyzed by that, seeing his grace that he's given us. Right there in the beginning, we have a couple of not so much maybe easy things to do, but some things you can try to do in the power of the Holy Spirit is verse 13 there, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace that has been given you in Jesus Christ. And like I said, maybe I have some practical advice for you, but it's not uh, so easy to act out. It's, I'm not going to give you an idea of how to do that, except visualizing that, like continue to, as I said earlier, set your hope on God, realize that ultimate godly hope that we have, just as we have offended ultimately God, we ultimately have our hope in Jesus. Setting our mind on that can help us grow and point to uh, our holiness and, and continuing to set us apart, making us different from our old self, putting to death the old ways, the flesh, and making us something different from ourselves. And then verse 14, be obedient. So as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires. Again, putting to death our body, our flesh, our old ways, but also being obedient. I think often we struggle with... Um, this idea of seeking victory over obedience. In the book, The Pursuit of Holiness by Christian writer Jerry Bridges, he, he mentions this idea of seeking obedience over victory instead of the other way around. Often when we are struggling with sin, we say like, I want this victory and I just want that more than I even want a relationship with you, God, even more than I want to please you, God. And so he's like, hold on, hold on stop there. You will get that victory but we can't just be trying to get that. And, and you have probably, if you struggle with sin, even though in the least, you realize when you seek that victory, that deliverance first, you're going to fail. And so here Peter's calling us to be obedient first. And we are obedient as a result of faith. That faith that has been given to us, that we have been put, that we have put in Christ because of that grace he's shown us in verse 13. And so faith in God, because of what he's done for us, leads us to obedience. we love him because of what he's done for us. And as a result of obedience, not by ultimately anything we do, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we re actually receive victory from sin. Much easier said than done, but that's how it works. And then in uh, his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, Bridges also mentions these misconceptions that we have about sin, that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. Um, 
we, we say, I want to be delivered from sin, but like for me, like I want to be delivered from sin so I can live a good life and a holy life, which we are called to. But then we just stop there. We don't think again, who is this God who I have offended? And who is this God who I have put my hope in that I want to love? So it's good to be like, yeah, sin is bad, but sin is not just bad for me. It has offended my God. So shifting that, and that helps us to actually lead into that idea of obedience over victory. If we shift from being self-centered, seeking victory over our sin, which again, sin is bad. And it's like, oh, that's a good thing to overcome your sin. But it's not ultimately us overcoming our sin, but it's God through his provision of his Holy Spirit. Another misconception is he says, we've misunderstood living by faith to mean that there's no effort of holiness required of us. Again, going back to that distinction of God provides, the rain comes down on the land, but if you haven't done the work, if you haven't plowed the field, if you haven't planted the seeds, then we're not going to see fruit. We're not going to see holiness and growth in us. We have to be working, cooperating with God. So there in First Peter, we, we see some somewhat practical things as we desire to be holy, as we are called to be holy, that we can live out. Um, I would encourage you this week to take your own time and meditate on these verses, First Peter 1, 13 through 19. And just ask God to reveal to you specific ways in your life in which you can do that. Uh, and I'll give you some resources at the end, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, okay, so one more somewhat practical step. Again, it's not going to be extremely helpful right now, but to think about it and to put it into practice, it'll help. And that is the key there, that word practice. So what I would challenge you to do is to practice holiness. And it's not just like a doctor practices medicine. Like you say, oh, I practice this or whatever. That just means they do medicine. Practice in the traditional sense is this discipline of training where you fail and you grow, you learn from those failures. And also you just repeat the same thing over and over again. You train your body, you train your mind to get used to these things. If I want to become better at playing the piano or the guitar, which I really do, uh, I have to practice and I don't. And I, then I'm frustrated. I'm like, why am I not good at the piano? And I get envious of other people who are good. And I think, oh, they have this talent or whatever. And then I forget, like, I don't look at how much work that they have put into that and actually practicing it. And so in a similar way, we should practice holiness. One, again, not so practical, pract uh, practical action step is to, as we practice holiness, is to practice surrender to God. Um, when we wake up in the morning, it could be especially difficult to um, just set our mind on the right things. We start thinking about what the flesh desires. We start thinking about what's going on for the rest of the day. We start getting worried and overwhelmed. So what I would challenge you to do is at the beginning of the day, as you desire to practice holiness, practice surrender and just be like, I have no idea what's going to happen today, God. But reminding yourself of the truth, remind yourself of that gospel, remind yourself of Jesus, despite his holiness being set apart and separate from us, he did this. He died on the cross for you to take the wrath of God that you deserve, that we should be in fear and tremble in awe of. And as a response to that grace, him being raised to, to life and promising us eternal life, we should seek to live a holy life. So just reminding yourself, you've heard it plenty of times and it can get stale, but I'm going to continue to say it, is to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And if you need to do that first thing to set your day right, then do that when you wake up. Because it's just like, I don't know, especially for me sometimes when I wake up, it is like 
just feels like I have to pull my brain back into my head and, and connect it to my heart and just remind myself of what the gospel is because it's not easy. And this is the practice of holiness. You, you're building these habits. And just like you want to become a, if I want to become a better <clears throat> piano player, I have to practice it. I'm not going to get better if I don't create a good habit of it. Okay. Uh, can you skip to the slide that has Psalm 1 on it, please? This is another thing, <clears throat> just in your <laughs> quiet time. Huh? Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, we're moving. Um, so uh, just another practical thing in the morning or whenever you get your quiet time to, to practice is uh, you read the Bible, you sit down, and you're like, wow, this is so good. Or you're reading a book or whatever, and you learn some truth, and you're like, I love this. You write it down in your journal or whatever, and then you walk out the door, and then you completely forget the truth that you discovered, and it's just gone. And like I've done, I do that plenty of times. I'm just like, and it's like in the moment, I'm just like, this is so awesome. Like this has changed my life. I'm going to practice this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell other people about this. And I walk out the door, which actually I work from home, so I just go down. <laughs> uh, and uh, my mind is set on you know sitting on my workstation and getting breakfast and all that those other things or practicing the piano even. Uh, and then I lose sight of 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 that. Uh, so Psalm 1 here just is great. It, it says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither, wither whatever he does prospers. And so just that reminder of throughout the day, if we want to become holy, if we want to create these holy habits to continue to meditate on what is right what God says is right. How do we know what is right? Well, we trust that he is this holy God who has set a standard for us that is different from the world, that is different than our flesh, than our own desires. And we think about that day and night. We meditate on it so we don't forget it when we walk out the door. We do whatever we can to remember that. You have to figure out what works for you. I could try to tell you what has worked for me, but it might not work for you. So building that habit of practicing surrender, practicing remembering, meditating on God's word. And again, as a reminder, we have the Holy Spirit. So you have to not just practice, but have faith. So practicing holiness, but having faith that God is going to work because you are going to get into discipline and it's going to become stale and you're just going to be like, I don't want to know what to do. And you get to that point where you just like, I know you're holy God. I know you're going to make me holy, but I just can't do anything. So you're going to provide it all. And maybe he will. Maybe there's something like he's just going to deliver you. But again, as the farmer who wants to see that crop of corn come up, we're going to do the work and expect God to work and have faith that he's working in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. One of the greatest things I've seen in my life, which I was skeptical of at first when people said this, was in experiencing uh, struggle with sin and just like my heart not being in the right place, uh, is asking God to protect me from any spiritual warfare that I'm experiencing in my life. You know, reading through Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the armor of God, Again, it, it, you, you can have this head knowledge, but like as you actually practice it and say, like, God, I'm expecting you here to, to protect me. I don't know what's going on in my mind. I don't know what's going on in my heart, but you are doing battle for me. And again, we practice the surrender. We practice meditating on God's word. But we can get to this point of being, becoming apathetic where we do all the spiritual disciplines and they're great, but we, but we lose sight of the gospel uh, we're in community, we memorize the scripture, we pray, we do all these things, we do all these things that I just said, uh, but we lose it. 
we lose sight of it and we just we just start to fall apart i've been there and and i don't want to say that i've been there but i have been there and i sometimes i'm there every week once a week and i just have to stop and and be like i don't know you know what i need to do but i need to trust god i don't know what i can do physically and that's the point like i don't want to in, in saying that we have a responsibility to act put so much pressure on yourself that you have to figure it out yourself but just trusting God and you're just sitting there and you're just lying there and you're saying, I can't do this. I can't love you, God. I can't love others. I can't change myself. I can't do anything. I can't be holy. You start to echo Isaiah. You start to say, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I just deserve to be destroyed. And that's good. Do that. Like meditate on that. Be like Isaiah and just like lie there on the floor in your bedroom and just like dwell on that and let yourself fall apart expecting God to work. And this, this, might sound uh, not like good advice, but I've seen it and, and, and it works with that faith. So that as you're like, I don't know what, I'm just throwing all discipline to the side. I can't do anything. Reminding yourself of the gospel of who God is, what he's done for you, just trusting him. And I know he'll meet you there. If you say, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. He's going to meet you there. It might not change anything in that moment. You might not feel any different. You might not see anything different, but he is doing something. He is answering that call. Just like Isaiah in verse five saying, I am ruined. God sees that need and he meets that need and he applies grace and he gives him that grace that, that saves him. God is doing that for us continually. Um, some encouraging verses from Romans eight, I think. Next slide, please. In this battle, yeah. Oh, do we have? Yeah, there you go. Uh, so we did come back to it. Um, uh, do I want to read this? I'm not going to read it because I'm going, I'm going over. But Romans 8, 12 through 17 here, just talking about, you see the bolded line there in verse 13. If you, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So working with the Spirit to put to death the body, we will live. Romans 8 is great to remind us of what God's spirit does for us. The mind set on the things of the spirit is life and peace. That's verse six of Romans eight, I think. And I would encourage you as you struggle with sin to read through Romans chapter six, seven and eight. Uh, Romans six just lays out that reminding us of what Christ has done, us dying to uh, our, our sin, dying to ourself. Um, Romans seven just talks about that struggle with sin. At the end of it, Paul is like, who will deliver me? I think I have that Romans seven twenty four. if you could go back. It was probably a ways back. Yeah. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Praise be to God, Jesus Christ is the follow-up verse, which I did not include. Um, so Romans 7, uh, 6, 7, and 8, just drawing on those can also help you um, in these things. They have greatly, greatly helped me in my struggle with sin. So there's some practical stuff. Practicing surrender, practicing meditating on God's word. It can seem daunting, but again, we have to remember sort of that analogy, that image of the farmer who goes out into the field, he does the work, and then he expects God to work. If he doesn't do any of that work, no matter how much rain comes down, he's not going to see the fruit. I don't want you to get to this point of thinking, like, no matter how much grace God gives us, we're not going to change. Don't, don't take it that far, because God is, God is, is great, and he, the way he works, we don't fully understand. But in the ways we want to change, like getting rid of habitual sin that is not pleasing to God, we can work on that. And we can't expect God to just like that with a snap, just 
get rid of it for us. We have to be willing and cooperate with him on that. All right, so let's go back to Isaiah 6 to wrap it up. Um, just at the very end there. We've gone through this. We, we have an understanding of God's holiness now, hopefully. A better understanding that that means God is separate. He is apart from us, and he is measures beyond us in the way that he is apart from us, that he's apart from the, the standards of the world. He is transcendentally separate, as Sproul would say. Uh, we've seen that his holiness and his glory go together. His glory points to his holiness. It's, it's that reflection of who he is. We see Isaiah's response to God, and I think this should be our model of confession. It should be our model of experiencing God. Um, not that every day you should seek to have a traumatic experience of God's holiness, but just that we realize with that reverent fear what we, how awful we are and unholy we are compared to God's holiness, but also the grace that he has given us and just walking in that. And that's Hebrews 12. You can go to that, the, the actual last slide now. Thank you. Um, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and pop note for worship. That's a good verse. Very last slide. And I read that without actually understanding what it meant. There it is. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire that awe of God that just like you are holy, I am ruined, I should be destroyed because of how my sin has just damaged my relationship with you and destroyed myself. But what you have done, it leads me to reverence and, and, and a righteous fear of you, God. And now at the very end, we'll look at verse eight and the very beginning of verse nine. I heard the voice from the Lord saying, who shall go, who shall I send and who shall go for us? And he said, and Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. And God says, go and tell the people this. Now, what God tells Isaiah to say is very not good. Um, he, Isaiah is this book of judgment, basically. It's God saying to his people, you are wicked, and you deserve wrath for that, and he's going to pour it out. Even though he is great, and he is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is holy and all those things. He's also just, and he has the right to, to give that to his people as he sees. And so God's message for Isaiah, if you read to the end of this chapter, is a message of judgment for his people. But what is the message that we have to bring to others um, that God is calling us to? For us, it's this, if we stay within the theme of tonight, it's a sharing of our holiness with God. It's saying, um, I, all this stuff, you know, I'm ruined, I'm undone, I, I don't deserve God's grace. But he has set me apart, he has made me holy, he has put me in, in a different place from my old self, from my flesh. And so then we go out and we share that with others. We share that God has made us separate from our old self, that we can die to ourself, that God is great, he is holy, and we trust him in that. And so we say, send me. We say, go. I want to go out and be your message, God. So for you, the question I have is, how are you going to continue to pursue holiness? 
there's a lot of practical things that you can do and things that I could say that you could try. But you have to remember, God calls us to be holy, to be separate from our old selves, to be separate from the world. So ask yourself, how am I going to continue to pursue that holiness? Let me pray. God, just thank you for your word, for your truth, for giving us a standard to set our lives upon that we can read this book and understand so much about ourselves, uh, just our sin, how we've offended you, the ways we get it wrong, but also so much about your character, God, about your mercy, your grace, your goodness, your justice, God. I pray that um, we could just see all of those things as holy, that we could see ourselves as holy, that we could answer this calling to holiness in our daily lives. Please, God, give us the strength to take action. Lord, give us the awareness to continue to rely on your spirit, to be dependent on you. I just pray that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would put to death our sin. We would put to death the old body through practicing a surrender to you and just having that right view of who you are, God, and that we would just live pleasing and holy lives to you. Thank you so much for this time. I pray you would bless our conversations in a small group. And all this is done for your glory, Jesus. Amen. This teaching mainly came out of these two books and this, this book here as well, the Bible. Um, <laughs> This is The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. It just talks about God's character and ultimately like that point of like how he is all these things, he's all these attributes, but those are nothing without being holy. Uh, just a great God is to guide us to who God's character is. And then this, I also mentioned The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges is a book that had, you open it up, it's 130 pages, so it's not that long, but you open up to any page and it's just great advice Again, not super practical in the sense to do this and this will happen, but just in some of the things I mentioned tonight, um, surrendering, putting to death, knowing these sins, training yourself, practicing holiness, you see that in this. So I would recommend that. Um, and if you don't have time for either of these, there's a sermon series by R.C. Sproul. If you just Google the holiness of God, you can watch that online if you are more of a listener than a reader. So I would recommend that. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.